find the answers to questions you may or may not have asked yourself here at Kaleidoscience, Conversations on Cognitive Science, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw. We were at a special event, which was the Coxie Space Day. There we had the chance to talk to a great variety of different people and talk about their fields of interest. May they be students or professors. We talked about various aspects of cognitive science, such as neuroscience, linguistics, philosophy or artificial intelligence, and many more. All the interviews were kept rather short, and another exception of our bonus episodes will be that not only Zünke and me are hosting, but also our two amazing producers Alina and Sophie, and both will jump into this role of being an interviewer. So stay curious and tune in. We are here with Adrian Döring. Do you want to introduce yourself? Say what you do here and... Um, what's your field of interest, your research, maybe? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a postdoc in the laboratory of Tim Kitzman, where we use tools from artificial intelligence, and in particular, deep neural networks, to um, understand the brain better. In particular, we work on vision. Nice. Um, we're going to go into more of your research topic a bit later. But first of all, um, we want to know, as a kid, I always wanted to be... What comes up for you? A drummer. A drummer? Yeah. So a musician? Yeah, I made a little drum kit out of uh, frying pans and stuff. <laughs> Your poor parents. <laughs> I think my parents are happy that I ended up in science. <laughs> <laughs> I get that, yeah. Um, talking about science, how would you explain your research or your field of interest to someone who would be like 10 years old? 10 years old? Uh, <laughs> the brain is made of lots of tiny little cells and the cells can talk to each other and just by the way they talk to each other your vision happens and your love for your family and your fear of the dark how can little things talking to each other produce all of this wonder well i try to model this using mathematics To do so, I also create very simple mathematical equations and I can make them talk to each other. And then, you know, these math can see things or hear things. And so step by step, we try to build these things to do the same thing as you. That's so interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that, that really sounds interesting. Um, is there a specific moment for you when you started going in that direction so how did you um, started in that direction and how did you get to where you are now mm. short or long version middle <laughs> middle okay <laughs> uh, when i finished high school i didn't know if i wanted to do literature or science i decided for science because i thought i could read on the side and it's harder to do science on the side of studying literature and then i studied life sciences then I, it was too fuzzy, you know, like you see a round clouds of points and a line through it and it says that it correlates and for me that was a bit of, you know, <laughs> hard to swallow. And then in my third year of bachelor's, I read a book by Roger Penrose called The Emperor's New Mind, I think, and it was about uh, how to explain consciousness using science. And uh, it was a, a lot, it was very physics based, but so then I, I left my life science curriculum and went into physics. Then I thought that physics was still a bit dry, but I still had this sort of interest for the brain and consciousness and stuff. So I went back into neuroscience. I would just like to state that I think nowadays that Penrose's ideas are rubbish. 
<laughs> He's a brilliant scientist, but I don't agree with the book anymore. But this is really the book that sparked the interest in, in me to understand yeah, how, how the brain gives rise to cognition, consciousness, and all of these things. Um, and how did you come to Osnabrück, to Tim Keatsman's lab? So I did my PhD in computational neuroscience in EPFL in Switzerland. And then I wanted to go more in the direction of using deep networks for modeling cognition. And uh, Tim was, in my opinion, one of the best researchers out there. In fact, I saw him give a talk at a conference and he was still a postdoc then, but I could feel that he was just about to become a professor. So I wrote an email to him saying, you gave the best talk of the conference. Um, I would like to work in similar things. I'm about to finish my postdoc. You seem like you're going to become a professor. Maybe we can work together. He said, yes, we wrote a grant, we got it. And I moved to the Netherlands where he was before. And then I moved here together with him. So you just followed him? Yeah, I, I would follow him anywhere. <laughs> Love commitment. <laughs> All right. Uh, now that we know how you got to your field of interest and what your field of interest is, are there some um, discoveries or breakthrough in the last years that are really significant to you and that you can tell us about? Mm. So, well, first of all, when I started my PhD in 2015, deep neural networks were just starting to be applied in visual neuroscience. And in fact, I had a very different approach at the time. I thought the human brain is this miraculous thing and it's sort of offensive to model it. <laughs> so I started my PhD showing all the failures of deep neural networks when it comes to modeling vision. Uh, so there was lots of hype and I was kind of, oh, the hype is too hypey. I'm going to show that the brain is more than just a convolutional network. So I did that. And then I noticed that every time you come up with an argument against using deep networks to model the brain, deep networks are so flexible. You know, so you can tweak them so much that researchers sort of take this criticism and use it to make better models. And then I, was, I thought, that's amazing. <laughs> And so I, that's how I started using these deep networks. So the first big revolution, in my opinion, in the past 10 years was the field realizing to what extent you can use deep neural networks to test really biological hypotheses. And uh, we recently have a paper called the Neuroconnectionism Research Program that people might be interested in reading, where we really explain why this makes sense. So that's one thing. Uh, the second more recent uh, big, you know, change of gears, the second most recent big change of gears was, I think, that people start to bring modalities together. So typically we would study vision on its own or language on its own. And recently people have started using language models to predict visual brain activities, for example. And we also do that. So I'm very biased in what I think is, <laughs> is revolutionary. <laughs> but I think I can also talk about it better. So we're part of this bunch of uh, researchers who said, well, the visual system doesn't want to just extract a list of the objects in the scene. It wants to extract a behaviorally relevant representation. It wants to get visual input and create meaning out of it, to put it simply. And language is good at expressing meaning. And so that's why it makes sense to use language models to look at brain activities related to vision. And I'm pretty sure that in the future people will 
take this further and bring together auditory and visual and language networks and you know sort of be a bit less in the business of segregating different things that the brain doesn't and a bit a bit more in the business of bringing it bringing it all together yeah it is really fascinating to to hear people being so passionate about <laughs> their topics and uh, how, how diverse um, all these topics are but also it's always interesting because uh, I feel like none of these research fields would be really possible without cognitive science because there are so many different fields and uh, influences that come together. Um, when did you realize that cognitive science is maybe the thing for you? Or um, mm. is is there some, some moment where you thought like maybe where it clicked for you that you saw there is uh, this field that's really interdisciplinary and um, the thing that you are interested in really maybe needs those different research fields? So uh, it was pretty easy for me. I, w I wanted to study consciousness initially. That's a bit difficult. I tried a little bit. <laughs> But so, you know, I want to study high-level properties of the human mind. I don't really care about microcircuits of neurons. I care about them to the extent that then they allow us to think or to perceive or things like that. And cognitive neuroscience is really the field where you say, what do I care about? Thinking. Okay, I'm going to make an experiment about thinking and relate it to the underlying neural computations. So, in my opinion, <laughs> if you want to study the mind, you know, and not the neurons, then cognitive neuroscience is the best game in town. And in fact, I didn't really know that when I started my PhD. I just came to a lab that, well, my master's project, I went to a lab that studied these sorts of things. And... Uh, Well, they were using tools from cognitive neuroscience. And yeah, it just made sense to me. I didn't question it too much. I did question it quite a lot uh, in, my, in the part of my work that has to do with consciousness, because the field of consciousness research is a, <laughs> a chaotic field where people, some people want to use pure philosophy, some people want to use quantum physics, and sensible people want to use cognitive neuroscience. <laughs> But so that's a field where it's not clear how you would do it. I think people who want to study vision or people who want to study emotions, they all agree that it's cognitive neuroscience. In the domain of consciousness, uh, it's more debated. But yeah, through the years, I became convinced that it's really by using cognitive neuroscience that we will make sense of it. And the reasons why are a bit complicated. We can go into it if you want. <laughs> But would you maybe agree that um, also this debate of which field is the right one to study it maybe sparks new ideas, like philosophical ideas can then maybe be used in cognitive neuroscience? Um, is that a thing that is happening? In oh, yes. Yeah, of course. I don't mean to dismiss the other fields. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so I think... For example, in that paper that I mentioned earlier called the Neuroconnectionism Research Program, Neuroconnectionist Research Program, we use, we have a philosopher in the co-author uh, list, and we really use arguments from philosophy to say, well, what should a good science of cognition do? You know, how do you judge if a way of doing science about cognition is fruitful? And that's a quintessentially philosophical topic. Right? If you're asking which way of doing science is fruitful, that's not a scientific question, that's a philosophical question. So this is one example where you know, philosophy and 
science really need to go hand in hand. And there are lots of examples like this. Uh, also, it was largely philosophical arguments that uh, I think started the idea of thinking about the mind in the first place. So I, I didn't mean to dismiss philosophy. <laughs> I just meant that when it comes to studying consciousness, the data that we care about come from cognitive neuroscience and they don't come from introspection purely or they don't come from quantum physics. Yeah, interesting. But yeah, just to make it super clear, I think one thing that makes cognitive neuroscience exciting is that, as you said, it's interdisciplinary. interdisciplinary. <laughs> like there's, well, neuroscience, psychology, computer science, philosophy, and that's really nice. It also makes it less boring. Yeah, I think that's why we're all here, because there's so many different disciplines that come together and so many cool things you can learn. Oh yeah, so you've mentioned a couple of people, um, you're working with Tim Keatsman. Um, are there any scientists, dead or alive, in your field, or maybe outside of it, that you would just like to sit down, have a tea with, have a chat with? <laughs> uh, I rarely asked myself that question. <laughs> I would quite enjoy having a, a tea with Daniel Dennett, who is a philosopher, because he influenced me quite a lot. What is he researching? Um, he did a number of things. Uh, what I know him the best for is work on consciousness and like placing consciousness more or less in the field of cognitive science. <laughs> and uh, he's a staunch anti-dualist. I started off reading a book by David Chalmers, which made me a dualist, and then after working on consciousness for a while and reading Dennett's books, uh, I became, I sort of swapped my thinking. So I swapped all of my thinking in my PhD. I went from thinking that deep networks were shit to, be, to thinking that they're great. <laughs> and I went from being a dualist to being a, a non-dualist. And I think Dennett is always very good at making points in a clear, engaging and provocative way. So I would enjoy chatting with him. Uh, I would also enjoy chatting with the early pioneers of computation, like Ada Lovelace would be lovely, also because I'm, I bet she could talk about not just scientific stuff, but also social stuff in a way that would be illuminating. Uh, I've always been a little bit fascinated by her. <laughs> yeah. So maybe these two. Yeah, and Plato and Aristotle and all of that, that is going to be interesting because you can ask them what life was like 2,500 years ago, <laughs> just for that. <laughs> I think it would be also interesting to ask those people what they would think about today's ideas. It's going to be, yeah, probably really weird, but yeah. also interesting. It's interesting to think because, to think about this, because I think with Dennett and Ada Lovelace, you can talk about things more or less in today's terms. They know math, more or less. They know the words we use. But if you want to talk to Plato, and you say, well, you know, you take little mathematical equations that represent neurons and then you train them to predict like a vector and then you take the cross entropy of that vector with a target, like <laughs> you can't do it. Like every single one of these words needs 2000 years of history to make sense. So it would be interesting also to just to see how long it would take to bring these extremely smart people up to speed, probably months and months and months, years. <laughs> Even years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. It's very interesting. 
Um, and one can really feel your enthusiasm for the interdisciplinarity of your field. And um, I think it's really cool that you said that you all changed opinions during your studies because um, it's amazing to see that we are flexible in our opinions and that we can, through research, we can get new ideas. And then also um, it's not a black and white or right and wrong thing, but sometimes you change your mind and that's totally fine. So thank you for that insight as well. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. I'll finish by saying that there is right and wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's good to be ready to acknowledge when we are wrong, but it doesn't mean there is no right and wrong to some extent. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe that was an overstatement. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fine. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. When you enjoy listening to us, the best way to support us is by following us on your chosen podcast app. This could either be Google Podcast, Spotify, or Apple Podcast. Another good way to support us is by following our Instagram account, which is called kaleidoscience underscore pod. On our Instagram account, you will also get regular information on the next episode. Thanks a lot for supporting us. This was Kaleidoscience, hosted by Elisa Palme and Sönke Löw. Produced by Elina Ohnesorge, Elisa Palme, Sönke Löw and Sophie Kühne. Produced in collaboration with the Cognitive Science Student Journal. The music was produced by Jan Lukas Schröder. The logo was designed by Annika Richter. Thank you for listening and joining us on our journey through conversations on cognitive science.